Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Jake Cutler. Cutler straight drop. Steps up in the pocket. Hook for a touchdown. Uncut with Jake Cutler. We've got a pretty cool guest, Mark Cuban. Thanks for having me on. Did you know that you wanted to get into business? From the time I was 10, 11 years old, I was always hustling. I want to party like a rock star the rest of my life and just have fun. Yeah. If you, exactly. do, if, if, you do, if you do it right. Yeah, and even if you do it half wrong. Yeah, you, yeah you're, <laughs> probably more than half. You can still be fine. Uncut with Jake Cutler. Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Caitlin Cooper of Indie Cornrows, and I really wanted to have her on. First of all, she's fantastic and knows knows the game incredibly well, but also because I'm trying to figure out the Pacers and there's nobody that I would rather talk to. So really great conversation. We go in a lot of different directions on the Pacers. Pace, uh, Sabonis' role, his ideal role, uh, status updates on basically all the key players on the team. Really love the conversation and fully expect that you will too. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me again. I always appreciate a return invite. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And it helps. I mean, first of all, you're great at what you do but also that you have a team you're the team that you focus on is a team that i'm having a lot of trouble figuring out and that means this one of the ways that i like to do that is talking to people who watch them more than i do and who have a good sense of it and i i I guess we could just kind of start there i mean it's been as i would think of it kind of an up and down season so far for indiana do you think that's personnel and availability or anything like that or do you see something more concrete going on here yeah, I mean, you and me both. I've been confused by this team a lot this season, to be honest with you. Um, I think some of it is personnel-wise. I mean, obviously not having TJ Warren now for almost a full calendar year is harmful. They just don't have anybody that, like, they have people that can provide facsimile separately of what he does, but nobody at the same time. So having him to be able to go out there and drive and get baskets when the offense really kind of stalls for longer periods, I think would be helpful. I mean, at times when they didn't have Karras and Brogdon at the same time, you could see the problems of not having a downhill playmaker and, you know, people as as many good things as tj mcconnell does teams are going to duck under him against him which limits some of what you can do brad wanamaker is a third string pro card obviously has his limitations so you can see that kind of stuff and i'm sure when you and nate did your um broadcasting on monday against the knicks you could see that it it wasn't helpful that they didn't have chris duarte there at the end of the game um especially when some of the minutes when they had mcconnell in i mean the knicks were even helping off the ball side corner when mcconnell was out there so if that's duarte that helps but at the same time i can look at it with how things went over that game against New York, Detroit, and in Charlotte on Friday and say, you know, having various people out of the lineup shouldn't be mattering this much. Like, there should be limitations, but um, some of the processing, I think, offensively was some of my more issues this week, but I don't know what you guys' takeaway was. So, Well, yeah, so I, I thought that the, the Knicks game was an interesting kind of sample into it because New York is better at more diligent about having scattering reports and executing them in the regular season than almost anybody. And like, I've long believed that TJ McConnell's limitations are more of a playoff problem than regular season one, because broadly speaking, teams don't say, okay, this guy specifically can't do these things. So we'll, we'll handle things differently, but quickly in particular, they did a really good job. Um, I mean, you give credit to the coaching staff for telling him what to do, but you also give quickly credit for executing it. But then have, so having that stretch where they, they only scored 10 points, I believe, in the fourth quarter. A lot of that was, you know, the, those bench units that couldn't score. But then later that same week, 
not it wasn't 10 points in a quarter, but it was 10 points in what, like 11 minutes at the end of yes. the Pistons game. Yeah. And those two things in conjunction and yes, missing some of your key players is an important consideration. But especially when you're facing less capable opposition, that is pretty concerning. Right. And and there's been these little stretches here and there. I mean, they scored eight points in the third quarter against the Miami Heat, though that was a win. Their very first game against the sea of the season against the Hornets, they gave up a 24 nothing run in the third quarter. And anytime they go through these long droughts, typically, if you go back and look at the shot charts and what's going on it's going to be a lot of missed threes they're going to get sped up in their actions and there's going to be turnovers but in those two fourth quarters this week the main thing that I was noticing is I mean and especially because Rick Carlisle after the game against the Pistons was like you know we I don't want to talk about offensive rhythm we need to be a team that after we get stops that's going to create our rhythm well then you look on unpredictable and their pace after a defensive rebound was dead last in the NBA and it was even worse than those two games against the Knicks and the Pistons and the Knicks you know they let Alec Burks guard Brogdon and he was just absolutely hounding him at half court. RJ Barrett was doing the same thing to Karis LeVert and then the Pistons were trapping and blitzing Brogdon and when you're seeing that type of coverage it becomes even more important to be pushing that pace and they don't want to get into a track meet in every game and I understand that every opponent's different but you could see in all those instances that it was being very micromanaged from the bench. You could literally hear it over the broadcast them telling them hold up hold it hold it and then calling a play call and they're looking over there. Well now last night when they played the Pelicans and they admitted this after the game that they kind of told the players hey we're gonna let you play more freely they just let them go like they let the natural we got a defensive stop lead more into their offense played more through Sabonis and that created a lot more flow for them and obviously it's a different caliber of defense going from what the Knicks were doing and even what the Pistons were doing quite frankly in the fourth quarter to what they saw last night against the Pelicans but I think that's a big difference I think that they needed to let loose of the rain some and at least they made some progress in that respect last night yeah and I like that you used in predictables metric on this, which I think is, is a very useful one. And if we wanted you to talk about the way that the, the coaching staff can impart this is that even with Luca on the team last year, the Dallas Mavericks had the second slowest time to shoot after a defensive rebound last year and and also after an offensive rebound. And it's part of why they, you know, took them a while a, a while to shoot last year, even when they what they didn't really get out that that much in transition. And another way to quantify this, um, this is one that cleaning the glass does, is what proportion of your plays are in the half court. And now there are a couple different ways. There, there are multiple inputs here that matter. So one of them is how often do you run off a stop? And then also how often do you get stops? Because you know you could see teams sometimes that have good or bad defenses shift this shift the scale a little bit. But the Pacers this year, third third highest proportion of their plays in the half court and that's not what you're looking for and, and impressively i would argue i mean they have good they have but i mean they've had all this missed personnel the pacers are actually 11th this season in half court offense the problem is basically every single team in the nba is much more efficient in transition than in the half court so that more higher proportion generally speaking the tougher the sledding is going to be for your offense Right. And last night they were, I looked up that number this morning, they were sixth in pace after defensive rebound last night. And it was interesting because, I mean, I'm sure we might get into it later, but the way that Sabonis has been used in this offense has been perplexing pretty much since preseason for me. But last night, um, Sabonis's touches per 36 minutes, because he only played 21 minutes because they got such a large lead, but his touches was over a hundred and his passes was over 70 per 36. And for the season, that would be 74 touches and 55 passes. So they kind of talked about, you know, 
coaches came in and told us, you know, we're going to let you guys be you guys. And when he was asked after the game about Sabonis being more involved, he said, well, he was open. So we were giving the ball. We want to move it and create a good situation for ourselves. And as a trailer and a guy who can put the ball on the floor and stuff, like he'll have the ball in his hands. Like his response led me to believe that he thought that was more organic than it was intentional. And I agree to an extent because some of it was just like Sabonis being like, I'm grabbing this rebound and I'm going to push the ball ahead. And Rick Carlisle, to his credit, you could see was more sitting down last night. They weren't looking over there for exactly what they needed to do. But there was also, in my opinion, a lot more intention to involve him, whether in the post or at the elbows with guys actually moving around. And it's like, yeah, part of you did play more freely, but part of the reason you played more freely is because you were allowing your fulcrum to facilitate that type of action. So um, I hope that's something that continues, that he's more purposely involved as a fulcrum, as we saw the last prior two seasons than what's been the case so far this year. But um, it seemed like Rick Carlisle thought that was more of an organic thing to me. So that was interesting in the follow-up. Yeah, that is, that is really interesting. And the way the way coaches frame it, sometimes that can be just the way they're talking to the media or something else. But sometimes it can be an important window, and we often don't get that many of them, into their thought process. And I... I think it would be more positive to see it as a as a concerted effort, especially like one of the hardest elements for a coaching staff to deal with in many cases is a player with unusual strengths and unusual weaknesses, just because especially if they have unusual strengths for their size, for their position and role. And so Sabonis is a he's a can be a challenging guy to kind of build a system around just because it's unusual. But when somebody's really good, it gives you more outs than if you than if they were if they were more limited. Like that's unusual strengths. I mean, you're not not everybody's going to be able to do it to the extent that like the Nuggets have with with Jokic. But using what Sabonis does so well, and I think this is kind of what you were trying what you're getting at with with his usage being so perplexing. That is some. I don't want to go with low hanging, but that's some fruit that the that I think this year's Pacers have not done as good a job at maximizing. Right. And it's so interesting to look back at like some of the things like even going back to last year with Bjorkren, you know, you let go of Nate McMillan, you are a top six defensive team. And when Bjorkren's being introduced, all I was hearing about is like what they were going to do defensively and how they were going to be this disruptive, aggressive defensive team. And it's like, okay, that's, I'm not sure that's the problem you needed to address. And then you saw how some of that went. And then at the end of last year and going into this one, you heard a lot about how, you know, they wanted to play um, like togetherness. And I understand, but I think Sabonis can be the lead point to leading to that. And it's felt like since you've watched the start of this year that for some reason they had identified that de-emphasizing him, whether that was going to be just his overall volume of touches or what, how they were going to use him in the post was somehow going to be the answer to how they got everybody else more involved. And I'm not really sure that I agree with that, given the caliber of what he can do when he does get doubled. And that was even a piece of it last night, too, because when they went up to Toronto, Nick Nurse, probably more than any other coach, has made it an effort that they send. I mean, it's practically a reverse box and one. They will send three or four people at Sabonis. And when they were in that first game up there, like there was one possession where Sabonis was already being doubled and he didn't have the ball. And on the weak side, Fred Van Fleet is just guarding Justin, Miles Turner, and TJ McConnell all at the same time. And the spacing is all wacky, like nobody's pulling over into that space nobody's cutting and last night it's like okay so bonus is at the elbow new orleans does send a couple people at him and justin as a movement shooter being inserted into the starting lineup is actually moving and cutting around that um you saw a couple different players doing more making more of a concerted effort so it is a two-way street that like even if you get him touches you still have to be playing in the type of way that's gonna facilitate that type of flow but i mean yeah, I mean, he, he showed that he's capable of that over the back end of last season, and it hadn't made a lot of sense to me um, 
why he had been de-emphasized to such an extent up until, I mean, really last night. Well, and, and what's so interesting to me about that decision is, okay, you can you can emphasize or de-emphasize a player, but what are you doing that for? And yeah. Sabonis is, you know, like, I, I mean, I've spent more time probably talking about his flaws than many, but he's also a phenomenally talented offensive player that you can really build things around. And, you know, with, especially with TJ Warren out, like, yeah, I, I love yeah. TJ Warren. I think that he can be a big part of it. And I love Miles Turner for very different reasons. But you, like, it's it's so telling to me that, like, you, I mean, there are some of the basic ways of quantifying a player's role within the offense. So if you want to use, like, basketball references version of usage, down basically from 24% Sabonis to under 22%. And his assists per 100 possessions, 8.8 last year, 5.2 so far this year. And, you know there are lots of there are lots of things that you know, we're dealing with a small sample here. There could be lots of noise and everything else, but I understand if you want to try a different concept, you want to do it, and 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 it's not like the Pacers' offense was perfect last year. But what has, one of the things that has bothered me as more of let's call it an outsider in this is what is the theory of the case? What are you, what are you trying to do? If you are de-emphasizing this player, and and yes, there are other Pacers that can that can be positive players, and there are other Pacers that are having good that are having successful seasons, but being more let's call it democratic, being more together, that typically works when you're kind of a hot, when you have a higher talent level, whether that's better play finishers or more guys that can that can create those seams, and the Pacers, especially when they're limited in personnel, they don't have those guys. Well, yeah, and I like that you bring up the reason and the rationale why of it, because it's like, what is the good in it? Like, and I use this phrase loosely because it's not a complete comparison, but like the reemergence of OKC Sabonis with his three-point attempt rate going up to the level near to, not as high, but when he was a rookie and his free throw rate going down to the level when he was a rookie. The Pacers are like, not. I mean, I, I think their numbers before last night, they were about 28th in opponent free throw attempt rate and 26th in their own free throw attempt rate while they were also struggling with turnovers it's like you can't be all three of those things at one time and the, exactly what you said the lowest hanging fruit to correct some of the free throw issues was going to get be to get Sabonis near to the basket and everybody wants to counter and be like well he's getting a lot of shots in the restricted area I'm like yes he is but that's not where his touches are originating like it's, right it's more that's work. a great point he's having he's having to dribble into those shots against a collapsed defense versus actually generating a close range uh catch for him and and, and against Detroit they were having turnovers because they were trying to enter the ball into the post both he and Miles but the thing I always want to bring up with both of them, and Miles is doing better at finding seems to duck in. But by the time it's it's always out of random, which I like random offense, but in this case, like the guards aren't necessarily looking for it. And by the time they identify, oh, they've ducked in and they have a mismatch, they don't have a lot of good players to throw it in there. And then their player, their defender ends up poking the ball away. Like you're not doing that deliberately where under Bjorker and it would have been like, okay, we're setting a wedge screen. We know that Sabonis is going to slide down there to the block and we know we're going to get him the ball. And if a double comes, then we're getting a three point attempt from a better shooter versus you know kind of letting the defense off the hook because I don't have a problem with him shooting the ball more and it would certainly make him a more complete player if he does it and he can hit those shots and if you're in the corner and you're open though I would ask why he's in the corner quite as much as he is but if he's in the corner and he's open it's harmful to modern offense to not take that shot so good but I mean I've pointed this one out before they played the Sixers last weekend shot 70% in the first half things were looking good they come out in the third quarter and you can look over at the bench and they deliberately called a play that's uh Uh, pick and pop it's a one four 
flat and it results in a pick and pop for Sabonis, or in this case, for Sabonis, at the top of the key to shoot a three. And it's in like the first 10 seconds of the shot clock. Like, I, I don't, that I don't really understand that type of usage of him. And I don't think that that's best for him or the rest of the team. Like, it's not just about his numbers, it's about what else you're getting. Cause I mean, even late against some of the games, it's like, what are you, ben- what benefit is there if he isn't the screener? His screening techniques are better than anybody else on the roster. I mean, you could see that again down the stretch against the Sixers. They ran the same play three times in a row. 77 with a Gortat screen while he's stealing off Andre Drummond. There's not another player on the roster that's going to do that. And you're not going to get the same type of passing if somebody collapses on him in the short roll as you're going to get from Sabonis either. So um, I think that there's been some mismatched roles. I tried to make sense of it early in preseason, but I think that some of that needs to be ironed out because like you said, I mean, they had risen to two years ago, they were a fourth or fifth seed. Like I'm not saying that was an elite team, but they did prove capable of being a, a better playoff team with him facilitating a lot of the offense. And and some of it too, like you said, I mean, if Karras was producing at a, at a higher level, I mean, his effective field goal percentage right now, I think of like the 81 guards who have taken as many shots as he has, it's like 79th. He struggled. His decision-making hasn't been great. And I think some of that's probably the back injury, but if he was producing at a higher level, I might understand it a little bit more, but in the fourth quarters are both those games the offense got very sticky where either he or Brogdon kind of had the ball for the whole possession while they were trying to do something against pressure right and that's a part of the pacer story that I've been finding so compelling this year is that there are a lot of points of frustration to be sure and we, we've, we've talked about a couple there are a few more that we will that we will get into but then also there are the Pacers are, you know, clean the glass net rating. They're they're plus. They're positive. They're underperforming their point differential by the most in the league. And generally speaking, you would say that's it's a positive considering we're partway through the season. If it were the whole season, then it would be a different conversation. So the because the idea is that at least to some extent that will overall balance. They have this. They've lost a bunch of close games and everything else like that. And so, like, one way of arguing it is, like, the many of the things that are wrong are more fixable. And so the idea is that we're, you know, as, as we record this, 18 games into the season and 18 games into an 82-game season, there's more time to do that. And theoretically, you know, we still don't have an exact timeline on Warren. He'll be back. And, and I mean, and they've had a lot of other, you know, absences. Brogdon missed a couple of games. Duarte, I thought they did really miss him in those two. And... So there is a there is a reason to be optimistic, but it's funny because a lot of times when I'm watching them and when I'm watching them, I end up not focusing on that. But there are like if, if you're thinking about, OK, what it, what can we take from this? What can be corrected where we go? There is a reason to believe that the next 20 games, the next 40 games, the next six games can be better than what we've seen so far. But it's far from guaranteed. Right, because one possession that I would point out, which I will edit myself because I doubt they want me to say the exact play call that they were using because it's funny. For some reason on the Bally Sports Network, their uh, game commentary was actually muted on my cable TV provider. So all I could hear was arena sounds the last couple games. Which is actually pretty fun sometimes. And I shouldn't say that as somebody who sometimes announces games, but it it can be a really cool experience. Yeah, educational to an extent for sure. That's how I I knew that they were kind of micromanaging the pace of that extent but um in this particular one you could hear them calling out the specific name of the play which i won't say but what it turns out to be is sabonis will set a down screen karis will come out to the wing and it becomes an angled pick and roll and they want to create a two side so you could hear them calling out very specific instructions 
And to the point where they're like, Miles, get out, because they wanted Miles in the strong side corner. And then they, I, I don't know if it was Justin and Brogdon that they wanted weak side. Well, by the time they had like barked out all the instructions, it was like 10 seconds before they had even got into the play. So like you're at this optimized, I totally understand the geometry, why they wanted to do it. Miles is shooting the ball better, put him in the strong side. I get it. But like by the time you're done yelling out the instructions, there's 10 seconds on the clock and you barely have time to run the play to the extent. So when you're saying that about like what you can see and what they can improve on, it's like I can see both sides of it. I can see the benefit last night of them playing more freely and being able to do that against different opponents. And I can also see that, hey, this coaching staff, like these offensive sets are good. They just need to be able to do it quicker and I guess have a better sense for where they need to be on the floor so that they're not having to be like hyper managed halfway through the clock and also let go of some of the reins. But like you said, like TJ Warren, yeah, that's a big one. And then another change that uh, might pay dividends as the season goes on, I don't know. They actually brought Duarte off the bench last night and put Justin Holiday into the starting lineup because they wanted some more of that kind of random movement and wanted Duarte to be able to have more reps and possessions off the bench. I don't know if they'll stick with that, but I think that it did clarify some of their rotations because I don't know what you guys thought in that New York game on Monday but one of my main sources of frustration was they were playing Goga and Sabonis together which is something they have been doing and I don't I don't have a main issue like I want Goga to get minutes as long as they keep all these guys on the roster like it doesn't make sense if you're not finding developmental time for him but it didn't really make sense that they were pairing both of those bigs with TJ McConnell and Karis LeVert at the same time that's like a zero spacing lineup there wasn't a lot. Sometimes Jeremy Lamb was out there, so it wasn't helping the defense. And they were hard hedging, which is what they want to do with that pairing. So if Duarte's off the bench, you're not playing McConnell and Levert together as much. And they got to some other bench lineups that I thought made more sense. Like I like it when Duarte and Keelan and Torrey Craig can be out there together, or Keelan and Justin and Torrey Craig can be out there together. And then Goga played some minutes at just solo center, which we really haven't seen this season. So I think in a lot of ways, Rick Carlisle's still figuring out which combinations can work because in his defense like he hasn't had the full complement of players to fully do that but um we'll have to see like i'll be very interested in how they look on monday against the bulls against better competition than what we saw on saturday doing some of the things that they tweaked right one potential challenge that i've identified is that i'm a big believer in having multiple creators you know if you want to i sometimes i describe them as primary ball handlers but they don't all have to be that having multiple on the floor but you run into a challenge and this really came up in the next game where you have kind of you have a lot of different creators on the floor and some of them are limited shooters because then you can get into circumstances where what what is that guy going to do this is the most frequent articulation for those of us who are more critical of Ben Simmons' role on a good team because it's like, well, if he doesn't have the ball in his hands, then what are you? What is he going to do? And in the half court, and so I, I think that one of one of the ways that I when I was seeing that lineup with Sabonis, McConnell, and Karis Levert out there together, not the you know, is that maybe one of the ideas is that that the coaching staff is not thinking of. Sabonis as a creator in that sense and big creators are fundamentally different and you have to get them within get them their touches in a different way and everything else and but the idea for me is that if you want the ball in Sabonis's hands and you want to run actions involving him then you run into some of the same problems so if you're playing him with two other with two other guys there's there's going to be a point of friction unless everyone involved can shoot reliably and so maybe one of the adjustments that should happen and this didn't occur as much last year i think just because of who was available and who wasn't is that like some of the like the Sabonis McConnell lineups worked better because you kind of knew where things were going and also it worked very well Right. I mean, two years ago, one of their best lineups, P. 
period was their bench lineup that was McConnell, Aaron, Doug McDermott, Justin, and Sabonis. And it was, it was kind of the perfect combination of those couple things that you're mentioning because you know that McConnell is going to be the one unleashed, freewheeling, probing. And then you have these two shooters where, you know, Nate McMillan still runs a lot of floppy. You could run floppy with Doug and Justin. And then Aaron, while he can do some stuff on the ball, at least that particular season was shooting the ball well off the catch. So it was kind of a perfect type of combination. And, and right now when you're playing McConnell and Levert together, I mean, and this has been a, a come and go problem. There's games where McConnell really gets to, you know, dominate the ball and do the things that he does. And then there's other ones late where they'll play, like you're saying, these three guard combinations. And he ends up being the person off of it. And it's exactly that. What are you doing now? Because um, and seasons past, he would end up like at the slot. So you could do some like, even if he's off ball, he can at least go and catch behind the slot defender at the defense get into the teeth and then make a kick out when he's just in the corner and the defense is pulled over that becomes a little bit harder to do there's there's once in a while where like especially against switches de- switching defenses they'll let him set a flare screen and slip out of it and then that allows like Duarte or Karras or whoever to get an isolation and it makes somebody have to account for him but I feel like there's a lot of times late in games which I mean some of this is semantics because I don't imagine that if this roster was healthy you would probably be having TJ McConnell out there late in games I don't know maybe you would but um where it just feels like he needs to be doing something like he just can't be standing off ball that showed up at the end of the one heat game they finally started giving the ball to Sabonis in the post to kind of reshape how Miami loads up at the blocks to create openings and now Sabonis is throwing a dart to TJ McConnell or they're playing against the Wizards and they run a double drag and that gets covered up and now it's TJ McConnell in the corner so some of that's been come and go there's games where it's felt like they figured it out a little bit more than others but yeah I mean it's part of the problem that especially if Levert continues to shoot the ball to the way that he is which he's never been a great off-ball shooter but he's not shooting the ball well off the dribble right now either like opponents are going to duck under both of them so it it creates a lot of problems if somebody's going to sag off of McConnell somebody's going to duck under over Levert and then you really can't get Sabonis in the short roll at that point in time when they're all three out there if somebody's going to duck under so um, that combination really wasn't out there last night so it felt like they kind of worked around that a little bit. You brought up we Levert has come up a couple times. I, I I've never been the biggest fan of Levert. I, I you know the, the the challenges that he's dealt with are important to acknowledge. But also yeah. like he's he he's never real to me. The idea I've always been critical of the idea of a two like a a two guard who isn't a multi positional defender who also isn't a really versatile shooter who kind of needs the ball like he is a a very specific type of player and there is a value to that in certain rotations depending on what else you have and of course some of this is brought up they they need something different from him when when Warren's out and some of these other challenges but this kind of this season in the early stages has been a reminder to me of how many things have to go right for a player like Karis Levert to be a real value add in a starting five. Now, can Levert be a better player than he's been? Obviously. And I mean, shooting 23% from three and a lot of the other stuff like this is, there will be a regression to the mean that will help him a lot. But the, again, we've, we kind of talked about the theory, the plan of it, like that is a real concern for me when you think about Levert's place on the Pacers long term. Now, maybe this problem is just solved by having Chris Duarte. Like maybe you've already replaced Karis Levert. He's just not all the way there yet. But the, so like, 
I think that it's it's worthwhile to acknowledge that the Levert that the Pacers have had so far this year is worse than what we would expect moving forward. But I think you still have the conversation about what is his ideal role on this team moving forward. Right, because, I mean, he's top of the player. It's what you're saying. Like, he needs to be, like, a high-usage guy in order to do what he does. But then, like, a lot of times his production doesn't warrant that, to put it kindly. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the give and take between he and Brogdon. Because in theory, like, it always gets brought up, oh, off-ball Brogdon. I'm like, but Brogdon, like, is a better overall playmaker than what Karras is. I mean, I there was, like, rumors last year around the trade deadline, I remember, that got reported where it was like, well, the Pacers are listening to offers on Brogdon and Sabonis because they see Karras Levert as the point guard of the future. I was like, you know, Karras can do some playmaking, probably more so than what was the case with Victor Oladipo. But I see him as somebody who could potentially relieve some of that not replace it um consistently because like even here you see like i don't know how much of it is his back like i said but like late against that pressure against the knicks and the pistons like he's not releasing the ball on the slip quick enough when he when he sees a trap and then he just kind of hunts and pecks around with the ball until he gets into the spot which goes back to his overall like what he can be for a team his shot profile like he he takes so many shots in the non-restricted area that if he's not making them he's not going to get to the free throw line so he's not going to mitigate it there and then he's not getting deep enough to really force the defense to rotate so that he can make a kick out pass like his main value add is his ability to get downhill and find Sabonis as a roller and in some cases because the offense has been somewhat micromanaged he doesn't necessarily have like the freedom and space to be doing that like you saw at the back end of last season when he and Sabonis were putting up like video game numbers under Bjorkren because the pace was so juiced Um, and there's drawbacks to that clearly like that impacted their defense taking quick shots was impacting their rebounding as well but it feels like there's a little bit of a push and pull and what type of player he needs to be within the system but he's also just like you said, like, I don't know if it's the back. He's overcome a ton of challenges in the last year. So I don't like to judge him too harshly, but his decision-making hasn't been great. And it's felt like on possessions where he kind of had blinders on, like you'll see like pretty open plays that he could be making that he hasn't been making where the ball is stuck in his hands. I mean, he acknowledged it after the game against New York that the ball stuck in his hands. And then he just kind of did more of that against the Pistons. So um, yeah, I mean, I'll be interested to see what they do when Warren is back and healthy. Will, will Chris Duarte have made it back? Back out of you know the bench and he's the starting two and maybe you can let Karras run some bench units or will they keep things as they are and and still have Duarte there and, and you know still don't even know long term what TJ Warren's situation will be I mean hopefully he gets back and healthy but he's obviously in a contract year as well so yeah it's a it's a lot to manage and um somebody we haven't talked about much in this is is Miles Turner his mm-hmm. his defensive place is is pretty established and I, I think Turner deserves a lot of credit. He's improved on the defensive glass a lot over the couple of years, but I mean, shot blocking is ridiculous and everything else. You, we, we've talked at other, you know, when we talked previously about, and you've written, of course, extremely well about Turner's role within the offense. We'll talk about both phases of the game, but I, what are you taking away from the first 18 games of Turner season? Right. It, it's been kind of up and down to watch in a sense, because in the early going, um, he was benched in some fourth quarters. Like he was benched in the fourth quarter against the Charlotte, against the Hornets. I mean, and I, I probably shouldn't use that word so harshly because I think some of it was matchups, but still the decision was made that he was going to be the person who wasn't out there. They played Goga over him in the fourth quarter against the Bucks. They played O'Shea Brissett over him in the fourth quarter against the Heat. And some of that was dealing with foul trouble. But then, you know, and then, then he plays against the Wizards and he has like this you know great moment of awakening where he has the 40 point game and some of what you'll see was a carryover from seasons past and what you said too about the Knicks and their scouting one thing that Tom Thibodeau does is 
which most teams do not do, they will guard Miles with the five, and that five will sag off, and then it's basically daring them, like, okay, go ahead and beat us from three. And last year, that strategy worked. This year, in the first game they played against the Knicks, Miles went seven of ten. So that next game, this week, they put Julius Randle on him and were actually guarding him out on the perimeter, which I think for the Pacers in the long term, for him to be guarded, that's going to be opening up more space, but then he's going to have to adjust to that. So he's had some really great games. I mean, I think about a year ago, I wrote an article about like he needed to stop record scratching out of shots and actually look at the rim. He needed to get his feet set behind the three point line. He needed to make better reads out of whether to roll or to pop and to find places as a cutter when he's playing at the four. And he's doing all that. Like to his credit, I've never seen him shoot the ball as confidently as what he he's doing right now he hasn't shot it quite as well the last couple games but in terms of actually letting the ball go like just as an example if if somebody's gonna go clear across the lane to tag Sabonis on on in two-man game empty side pick and roll and he's wide open in the corner and he catches the ball whether somebody rotates over and stunts or they switch with a small he will still let the ball go and that's not something that would have happened a year ago like there were times where like you know Kemba Walker might peel back switch against him and he's throwing like a grenade out of that and now he's actually even if he misses a couple he's going to still keep shooting the ball which I think is an important stride for him I also think it's valuable that the coaching staff has used him as a trailer and told him you know let the ball go and transition because I think that's valuable and what else that can open up. Um, some of it too is like these last couple games, he didn't have a lot of shots against the Knicks. And I think some of that was the defensive coverage, but also just he ducks in and the guards don't always see him. But I do think the next evolution for him is to see what he can do against defense. Like we've now seen for, you know, a year and a half, like what Sabonis is going to do when he has two or three bodies on him. We now need to see what's Miles going to do when somebody's out on the perimeter playing close to him, or if somebody screens the secondary help and they fight through that screen and he's not getting a shot, what does he do next? And how does he continue to evolve putting the ball on the floor against the closeout and other stuff like that? But I mean, it's the most confident version of Miles Turner that I've seen. Yeah, it is. And I'm really happy you brought up that he, what he's doing with the ball in his hands. And, and, one of the phrases that I've heard, um, I've heard, I think I heard this originally from a coach, is the idea of can you maintain the advantage? And so basically the idea is if if the ball is, let's say it's hitting a guy in the corner and you get, so one way of, of doing that is you just take the open corner three. Sure. Um, but another another thing you can do is either maybe somebody's stunting out to you and so you can pass it to somebody open or maybe you can take a couple dribbles and you, you get somebody else. But the idea that you don't want to let the defense off the hook. Yes. And it's encouraging that Turner is doing more in that space. I wonder if, you know, like if whether it's empowering or skill development, whether he can do a little bit more than that. But I also, you know, maybe maybe it's limiting it, limiting it a little bit can can help him make faster decisions. You know, like, OK, do one of two things that it depends. And that's part of, you know, working with a player or coaching and everything. It's hard to do. You know, as analysts, we can only deal with the film that we have and everything else. But I'm one of the things that's been so interesting to me about Turner this year is I think it has sim- preliminarily, and I'm interested to see whether you agree with me or not. It's simultaneously, in a macro sense, made me feel more confident that there is an efficient player in here, but also made me more confident that it's an efficient low usage player. Like the idea that I don't know that scaling up Miles Turner's role within the offense is going to lead to not necessarily like a ton of good shots for him. Like I think he could score more. I mean, we saw that in the Wizards game and a couple other ones, but the idea of like building the offense around Miles Turner, probably not going to lead you to being super dynamic. And that's fine because when you're a really good defensive center, yes, if 
there are really good defensive centers that you can use as the fulcrum and that you can do everything else but that's a privilege like there it's the, the reason you one of the reasons a lot of teams have small guys is because they can do more things and so i i think there are times that i get frustrated that and I, and it, you you've you've talked about this better than anyone in terms of like his role waxing and waning because it's he's more of a dependent talent but there's a part of that which is just totally fine. No, that's that's how I see it. I mean, I think it's somewhat role acceptance that I think it needs to be like in that game against the Knicks, they weren't guarding him. That's where the ball needed to go. It found the open person and it kept finding him because he had the hot hand. They ran specific actions to develop that. I mean, they knew that they were sending extra bodies on the tag with Sabonis. So they put Miles in the strong side corner. Mitchell Robinson went clear into the paint to tag Sabonis. Miles got a wide open three. He knocked it down. Like there's going to be nights where that happens or where Montrez Harrell is just completely ignoring him like happened in the Wizards. Like, and if he's going to hit shots like that, keep feeding him. But then there's going to be other games where he's not going to be open to that extent and it's okay like because he is going to offer you that degree of value on the defensive end and I yeah I mean some of it in the early going when I wrote the first piece about uh why the Pacers were putting Sabonis in the in the corner during preseason is you look at it and they want to do a lot of stuff with trailers and running delay or at least they were over the first chunk of games and it it just doesn't run as smoothly when it's miles like he can do some of that but like a big difference that you're going to see when the two of them run handoffs between Turner and Sabonis is like a key to doing that is actually dribbling at the defense so that you're creating the wall for the handoff to run smoothly and sometimes Miles doesn't do that it'll get blown up he can't change directions as well he's not gonna re-screen the unders out of a dribble handoff as well and just he's just not gonna overall it's just not gonna run as smoothly when it's him versus Sabonis so I don't really know that I see a big need to to tilt some of that in that direction so um for him I mean I know people get a little bit touchy when this gets brought up, but I mean, he, he was the person who talked about it at media day and said, Hey, for the last two seasons, like, I mean, this isn't a direct quote. It's paraphrasing multiple things that he said over the course of the conversation. But he said, we have five 20-point-per-game scores in the starting lineup. And he said that he's wanted more touches. He wants to be more involved. I mean, even after last night's game, he kind of talked about how his involvement had been a little bit more seldom. So it seems like some of the impetus for some of that is is coming from him and his desire to show himself as more of a two-way player. He did make a video that he put out on Twitter talking about, like, you don't know, like, what the perception of me is, is is not that I, I just, everybody knows what I do on defense. They don't talk about what I do on offense. And I think it's great what he's doing right now. I think, like I said, he's made strides, but I don't see him as somebody who's going to be like a top option in your offense night in and night out. Because for one, like what I said before, we've not really seen what that would look like if, if he was being guarded to the same extent. Because I mean, I wrote an article this past week on one play that I really like that they run and I've cataloged every time they've run it this year. And the degree of inverse gravity that the two of them draw when they slip out of it is, is pretty stunning how many more people are going to go to support bonus and what play they're going to make out of it so yeah I've, really never seen, yeah I've never seen miles do anything like that and in part I kind of like I think from the point in which he was a rookie like I still remember back to summer league he didn't even he didn't have a single assist at summer league and even in the bubble when Sabonis wasn't there, his touches went up and his passes went up and he had the fewest potential assists of anyone at his volume of passes in the first round of the playoffs. I think he averaged like 0.5 potential assists because he had a tendency to, to pass out of stuff like we were saying before. And then it was leading to offensive resets. He's better than that. Now he makes a little bit better reads out of the short roll or makes an extra pass in some settings that I haven't really seen him do, but I'm with you. Like, I don't see this as being like a high usage situation that would warrant. I think that's why he's averaging the same amount of touches under 
Rick Carlisle that he has the last two seasons. He's right between like 36 and 40. He's a play finisher. If he's open from the three-point line or if somebody comes and closes out and he can make a really graceful, pretty layup to the to the rim, that's great. And I think that's okay as long as he thinks it's okay. Yeah, so a really good way of putting it. You talked about the, the Pacers missing Chris Duarte when he's, when he's been out. I, I agree with that. How would you assess the first 16 games of his rookie career or season so far yeah some of it's a little bit tough to measure I mean obviously in that first game when he had the 27 points he was pretty spectacular I think that his footwork is tremendous the Pacers don't really have other people like him who can create space against you know a hedge or rise above a switch in the same way that he can his confidence is clearly off the charts I mean in the one game against Milwaukee he even waved people off so that he could make an isolation shot against Giannis so that speaks to his level of confidence I think um it's interesting because he was he missed those couple games with the shoulder and I was even remiss because I thought that he injured the shoulder in the second half against the Kings when they were on the West Coast trip because he was really rubbing and working it out and then when they went to the next game in Denver a couple of his shots weren't even close and that continued on into Utah but Rick Carlisle said that he actually injured it clear back against the Spurs so I yeah so I think that it's been impacting him for a while I thought for sure since the game against the Kings that he wasn't quite himself I don't think that excuses some of the decision making that we had seen but just his overall shot and how he was willing to take contact around the basket I thought looked pretty jarring so it's a little bit hard to say in general where he's at because I don't know how much some of that was bothering him but I think his next evolution and I liked last night when he was coming off the bench in those units they were running him off of of staggers and then he was getting used as a secondary playmaker which I think suits him really well um he still struggles a little bit with his pass accuracy and finding the how and when to find rollers which I think is perfectly fine it's probably not even fair to expect that much more of him right now it's just that he got pressed into that because people were out um defensively I like what I see they that he allows them when he was being used as a starter he can guard some point of attack guys and switch so that Brogdon's not having to do that that's valuable um and and he's also quietly very active at, at boxing out guys which the Pacers defensive rebounding has has improved and and their overall opponent offensive rebounding percentage has gotten a lot better this year in comparison to the last two and I think that he along with Brogdon are pretty critical to that so I don't have a lot of complaints I think he, he was definitely a value at where they drafted him and and I think that he still has room to get better right and that duality I think is is so important because it's easy to pigeonhole Duarte into a smaller role you know the uh, the idea of a role player because he's you know hitting threes at a good rate and considering the shoulder limitation I agree with you could even be better than the overall numbers have looked so far and it's a great place to start and and something that I I really like and and Duarte is significantly older than most rookies at 24 but when you have that generally speaking that means that a coach can plague you and then you can over time build out the skill profile to become like to, to be a better secondary ball handler, maybe even a primary. I think Duarte probably when I've watched him in person and and on film, he looks to me more like a secondary. He's not quite dynamic enough with the ball in his hands to think, oh, he's going to create seams all the time. But he can, I, I, as came up a little bit ago, taking advantage of an advantage is something that Duarte can do well. And I think that using his, his creation and his confidence in the mid-range, which I think will materialize into better efficiency later on. But I, I think it's really interesting comparing Duarte and Levert in the idea that 
at some point you might be choosing between them as the kind of the starter. And I think that Duarte's game just fits so much better in most teams ecosystems than Levert, because it, you're going to have like the problem with Levert is that you're, he, he does very specific things as we talked about earlier offensively, but if your team is going to be successful, you need somebody who's better than him at those things. Whereas with Duarte, he meshes with that other player, whether it's Malcolm Brogdon or somebody else. And so that means really whatever that other player's strengths are, you can use Duarte. And then if he builds in skill to fill in more gaps, more power to him. Right, because, I mean, I think, too, a, a piece of it is this the overall system that they're playing. They run so much Mavs offense, like there's a lot of carryover there. And like something that I would point out too, like the Kings in particular, a couple of opponents since they played the Kings have top locked him and he's been very natural and in going into the counters that the coaching staff wants to use, which one that they'll do is they'll set up like they're going to run like motion stronger just to stagger. And then instead, when that person gets top locked, they'll just go out of it and they flow right into Spain. So Duarte would become the back screener and then he will float out the three. And then obviously that's a shooter drive decision. That's something right there is is going to suit Chris Duarte better than Karis LeVert. Like if you need him to move off of that type of motion and get a shot, that's I would I would count on Chris to do that more. Or like they like to encounter in quarters with one four flat where the guard will will go and screen the ball and it's a go screen to get out out and make a shot. Like again, that's something that I would think fits Chris Duarte's overall skills skill set better than LeVert's. So in the long run, yeah, like the overall ecosystem and what they do, I can see places where they miss certainly miss Levert when he was out because he is better equipped to get downhill at this current moment than I think Duarte is. But some of that is also like he can just rely on his footwork a little bit too much. Like it's so good that there's places where like Sabonis might have his guy sealed and it would be easy for Chris to go the rest of the way to the rim and he doesn't do it like he'll take like he'll move to his left and take a, a short baseline shot instead. Some places like that where I think he could improve. But um, yeah, I mean, it, I think that uh, of most of their players, Duarte fits um, what Rick Carlisle wants to do offensively about as good as anyone. Yeah, I'm extremely excited to see to see where things go for him. And, and you know, we don't know when they're going to be closer to full strength, but how it, how it all fits together. Uh, anything else, Pacers or anything else that you feel is worth discussing? No, I think we covered the, the Pacers as well as we can. And who knows, by the time this gets released, they might have done something completely different in the next game and confused me even more. So, <laughs> Awesome. Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time. No problem. Thanks again to Caitlin Cooper for taking the time to come on. You can read her excellent work at Indie Cornrows, and you can also follow her on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper, the letter C, the number two, then an underscore C-O-O-P-E-R. Love talking with Caitlin and the insight like really valuable for me in terms of kind of getting what's going on. And she does such a good job analyzing play calls. And if you, if you read her work, either Indie Cornrows or on Twitter, it's, it really helps enlighten. And I, I value people, Caitlin and people who can do that level of insight on, on the league as a whole or any specific team. Cause it's just such valuable Intel and insight. And I, I could not recommend fault more highly following her, whether you are a Pacers fan or not, just to understand the game better. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different, things you can do. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player you're choosing. But the biggest thing you can do is subscribe and download every episode. And Real GM Radio is always going to come out at different times. This episode on a Sunday is a 
very good example of that. And the next episode will probably be quickly on it on its heels. So subscribing, downloading every episode can be really valuable, whatever podcast player you use, whether it's Apple or Spotify or, or really anything that's out there. Really do appreciate it. Can also check out my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime with Nate. That's still going, you know, five times a week and doing a mix of gamers and then our 15 and 60s, which are the public episodes. And then you can also join us on Twitter Spaces, which those are typically on Tuesdays. And then the NBA cast where Nate and I go, you know, we call a game with League Pass, which is always so much fun. And if you want to join us, Nate and I are doing Memphis, Utah, rematch of the first round last year. That's a, it's an 8.30 Eastern start, 5.30 Pacific, which will be, should be a lot of fun. Jaws, you know, has been awesome this year, though Memphis has had some hard times recently. Um, You can get all that there. Also written work at The Athletic, have a couple of collaborative things in the works, also have a few of my own solo projects. So everything's Everything's in the flow right now, enjoying kind of seeing what's going on in the early stages and then working on working on projects as they as they come up. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I'll try to get back to you if I can. Um I'm I don't make that promise just because sometimes things get lost in the shuffle, sometimes I want to take some time to ruminate and then I forget, or various other things can happen. Or sometimes it doesn't require a response. That's just the way things work out. So Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet all in one. It has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that could even store your Surface Pen. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash Surface Pro 8. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you 24-7 with supplies and solutions for every industry and access to product specialists ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.